everyone, and welcome to this week's Hinge Points. And this is going to be uh, a spicy one because we're going to examine, we're going to analyze whether the Soviet Union, the revolution of 1917, the successful Bolshevik revolution, was actually um, a good thing for the left. So Matt, before we get going, why do you think this is such an important thing to examine? What role do you think the Soviet Union plays, and particularly the 17 revolution in the modern American leftist imagination? Well, it stands as the first successful self-consciously communist revolution in the world. It set the terms for the class struggle that carried on throughout the 20th century. And for that reason, its leaders serve as inspirations and the leadership's tactics serve as inspirations for modern American leftists who are trying to, as always, see how they can be Lenin. See how they can fill the role of the Bolshevik party. Whatever that means, it doesn't necessarily, like people some often make the mistake of equating Marxist-Leninism as some sort of step of procedure. Like it's really a analytical framework for understanding the question of strategy as events unfold. How to apply Marxism basically. And Lenin absolutely applied Marxism correctly. It, from the assumption that he was acting as a key member of a global communist movement that was about to take power in Europe and it was filling out the, the, the role of doing that. And so at, for very good reason, he is the inspiration for millions of American leftists. And, the, and as a result, his baby, the Soviet Union, becomes with all of its accepted and recognized flaws, the model – for social relations outside of capitalism that we have to like look back to for inspiration. So it, it's it's like a key psychic element of uh, leftism ever since. Yeah, and uh, it's also with Lenin that you get like literally an individual, and we'll talk about this a bit more, but it's literally an individual who changes history, well, who moves see, the wheel. This is what makes uh, the 17 Revolution so particularly fascinating. We're talking about hinge points in the context of a process whereby the class contradictions within capitalism inside Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century reach a critical point in the early 20th century, which leads to this mass explosion of violence between the capitalist nation states of Europe. And that resulted in the emergence of uh, working class political movements in these countries who then had to respond to the events as they played out. Now, we've talked on this show about how in Germany and in England and France, the developed capitalist countries where Marxist theory was born and where everyone operating was assuming was meant to uh, um, reflect the circumstances of, meaning this is where everyone assumed that the communist revolution would start, the working class movement splintered on the question of war and largely at its political wing, acceded to participating in a bourgeois world war. By four years of carnage and misery and bloodshed, unprecedented and mechanized in an uh, unprecedented way in Europe, violence not seen since the Thirty Years' War, and yet more horrible still because of the intervening centuries of industrial machinery, uh, of the refinement of the industrial machinery of war. And in that context, that working-class organization sharpened into a conflict with the state. And in Germany, it failed. In France and in England, it barely even cohered, really. You had general strikes and mutinies in the army, but you never really had a conflict, a revolutionary situation develop. Because they won the, the war. They, they, they certainly quote, quote, not, won the war, yeah. Right. And certainly not in the United States. 
victorious and on the other side of the ocean and untouched by most of the trauma of the war itself, there was no conflict with the state. In the place where conflict with the state reached the point of successful revolution was the last car in the train, the the caboose of European capitalism, (laughs) czarist Russia, which had lain at the other end of the European engine of capitalism, uh, which was built in in its far western edges uh, in the low countries and, and England, and then base exported essentially at the barrel of a gun to the rest of Europe as the rest of the other economies of Europe were forced to incorporate capitalism into their nation states in order to compete with one another. Uh, and that was the same dynamic that forced the modernization of Russia away from its feudal peasant social structures at the, at the same time that capitalism is reaching full development in Western Europe. So when the war came, a person like Lenin could cohere around himself a group of disaffected members of all parties, bourgeois, uh, landowners, uh, and workers into this sphere of Marxist praxis. And we've talked before how crucial it was to the destiny of the working class movement in, a, in the world that the revolution failed in Germany. But in the episode that we did about it, we concluded that that question is not terribly contingent. It's overdetermined in a lot of ways. It's difficult to imagine the German revolution succeeding. But with the Russian revolution, this thing that set the course for a class conflict over the next hundred years, the success of the endeavor is much, much more contingent because so much of it comes down to the individual person of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, of Lenin, whose absence from the scene on St. Petersburg when you look at where the rest of the party was, the Bolshevik party, during the, the crisis months after the February Revolution, there is no momentum within that structure to push as decisively for power as it ended up doing. It was Lenin's arrival on Moscow at the Finland station that began to cohere the idea in the Bolshevik party that power was up for grabs, that they could take it, and that they should take it. And all of those ideas were synthesized out of Lenin and Trotsky's desire to be at the hinge point of history, basically. Like, they saw this as the moment of global class struggle, and therefore their fight in Russia would be part of a general fight across Europe. And under those assumptions, they were correct. They made all of the right decisions. That is why Lenin is revered. It's it's, it's just jaw-dropping his ability to examine... The, the moment where the weaknesses of the other side were, where his strengths and weaknesses were, and apply it. Now, there were failures and mistakes, and at one point during uh, the period between February and October, he had to flee to Finland in a fake beard. But it was his reappearance in Moscow after the Kornilov affair that stiffened the spines of the other Bolshevik Central Committee members and pushed towards a confrontation with a state that really only Lenin could see was completely hollow. Right, and completely winnable, that this was something that could actually be done. Yes. Um, And this is what I think is really interesting, thinking from a more macro perspective, is that um, I think you and I would agree, most of the times, like you talk about, and you and Chris talk about on Hell of Presidents, it's the structure that's more important, and the individual is there, but it's really the structure that's driving history. But in certain cases, the ones that immediately come to mind are really Napoleon and Lenin, um, much more so than Hitler, which we might want to talk about at some point, but like Napoleon and Lenin are really turning the wheels of history uh, in a way that I think few people are. Because they're operating 
in context where capitalism is not fully developed. Right. Because when capitalism shows up, it literally leeches human agency out of every action as complexity increases, as tech, the technologization uh, of decision making increases. Uh, so you have to go back. And the farther back you go, the more embodiment and power an individual can have. And Lenin right. is really the last one to be right. able the to more do this. agency, the more agency, yeah. which and, is and why maybe. He, yeah. Which is precisely why I think uh, you've made this point to me. I'm not sure if you made it in public. I'm sure you have. Why um, James Cameron is the perfect embodiment of a, of a Lenin or or a Napoleon because the exactly. only place that someone is able to exert that sort of agency, moving grand people around on a map, is it, it, the, the you know the director of a billion dollar movie franchise. Exactly. Like all those decisions of about the real economy are automized, which means we at the very top of power and uh, the nexus of power and money, you basically are just fucking around one way or the other in some field or another. Right. This is why uh, they're all going to space because this yes. is where they feel that they could do things, not, in, exactly. uh, not in, on earth. If you have like a real burning creative drive that has to be channeled into spectacle and art because there is no way to create the world anymore. The world has been shaped. So if you want to, yes, marshal an army of people, to your specific commands and exert your will on a grand canvas, you have to make movies. Right. So James Cameron is our Lenin and he is our Napoleon. Right. Cause you have to create worlds outside of the real world. Cause the real world has already been created and the algorithm has become conscious. But before right. we move on to the actual revolution and why it's important for the international left, one thing that I wanted to point out as I was just thinking about this episode is that I don't think it's, it's a mistake that, you know, we went into this wanting to focus on left-wing history in particular, that I think three of the episodes take place between 1914 and essentially 1921, because yeah. this is the moment when, when feudalism truly ends. It's on the ropes yeah. for 150 years, you know, it begins the, the first the Uprooting of people from land. Right. That, and that had been the defining, the defining structure of all uh, political economies before capitalism has been that the grassroots of all economic activity are carried out by people who have a direct relationship to the land. As cultivators in one form or another, slave, serf, yeoman, they are on the land in a fixed and permanent way. And capitalism rips that out over the course of the 20th century. And it is the assertion of capitalist social dominance in the struggle of the early 20th century that allows them to do that. For the first time wield in Europe, uh, in Western Europe anyway, to wield these fully atomized, liberalized subjects. And I would say that one of the reasons that the Bolsheviks won and that Lenin was able to be at the right place at the right time and make the right decisions is because you are dealing with a, a, a place where feudalism was basically still operative. Right, right. And this is the crucial point. So this this is like, as, as Marxists, quote unquote, this is the crucial point, because what does this indicate about the theory that it happened in precisely where it shouldn't have happened. I mean, there are certain writings toward the end of Marx's life where he's like, oh, maybe Russia, you know. Yeah, uh, the mirror maybe, looks good. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, may maybe something will happen there. Um, but it's such a contradictory revolution because it's led, as always, by the intellectuals of the cities, the urbanites, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, in this largely peasant society that is appreciate that is just less developed, less modernized than the rest of Western Europe, um, and particularly Germany, which is where the revolution was supposed to happen and where it didn't happen. So what do you think that indicates about Marxism, like actually existing Marxism as it proceeded in history? Uh, I would say that 
Marx's analysis of capitalism's accumulating contradictions is 100% accurate. To, to, I would say to the point of teleology, because I believe that he He's nailed proven right, all, yeah. all the big stuff. And the, for so long, people pointed to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall as a fundamental failure of Marxism. And now we can see with our fucking eyes, oh, <laughs> you were just moving surplus around as you fully uh, capitalized the world and created new markets and uprooted the last people who were outside of capitalism's cone and introducing them into capitalism. Yeah, you were able to move enough money around so that in its cultural centers, profits accumulated, but it, the whole time there's a cyclical uh, 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 arc that we are now caught in because we've created a fucking global market. But what he, what that schematic missed, and he was aware of this, but he was, I mean, the guy was trying to define an entire uh, like philosophy and, and <laughs> heuristic for understanding yeah. the world to replace like our Christian notions. Yeah, I mean, to, to Christ, like the guy Aristotle in Christ. Yeah. Exactly. Like you job, gotta, yeah. He's going to not be able to keep all of the fucking plates turning. And yeah, that's 85% what is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And like, well, that's the stuff that we have to figure out, you know, right. living after he does. And what, he, what uh, happens is, is that as capitalism accumulates contradictions at its geographic center, at its metropole within any uh, state structure, because we're talking about national capitalisms developing before the international capital develops, not only are you creating a cycle of exploitation and proletarianization, you are also creating culture. You are also building mental antibodies, basically, to a class consciousness that are interacting with all of these things, directing the energies uh, unleashed by alienation, people being pulled from the land into wage relationships and then being exploited in those relationships, losing the autonomy, the a fundamental autonomy that comes from knowing that you can make your own food. Right. That the, the, the idea that there is no subjection that can be total to you because you can exert autonomy as a producer. Right. There's uh, no outside as, anymore, basically. There's no outside. There's no outside. That is vast and monstrous, but it's not all going into the building of class consciousness and class conscious political and economics, uh, class conscious economic, cultural, and political structures. It's also going into the monoculture that's being created superstructurally by this national capitalism, which means things like nationalism, right? Which developed in the 19th century prior to the emergence of class consciousness that that is lower in the structural bedrock than worker, the concept of worker. Those things interact, language, religion, like these things all interact. And then just the search for status within a social organism, the search for status and in a competition for resources created by the structure of capitalism. That builds subjects who are not, who are going to, some of them become class conscious workers, but by no means a necessary or a sufficient percentage of them as this is the third thing as technology accumulates and the technology of control adheres to these capitalist superstructures and are able to assert an independent power that has nothing to do with the formal levers of control of social order that accumulate to capital. This is self-perpetuating. This is levels of latency removed from transactions to the point where where machinery is not just doing the job of producing economically, it's producing culturally, it's producing consciousness. And that is something that 
the working class movement has to contend with. And they tried. And uh, in Germany, they created a working class counterculture with structures of cooperative associations and schools and gymnasiums and, and theaters uh, and theaters and shooting clubs and sports clubs, uh, all the stuff we associate with civil society, but all of it arranged around their identity as workers. Like that's how it's supposed to work. But at the top of this pyramid, you're accumulating these positions of authority, influence, and power that are living lives outside of the experience of being a worker. They're living, they have in their mind an idea that they're part of a working class movement, whatever the fuck that means, but they're living bourgeois lives. Right. And those bourgeois are the places where all of the placed. actual authority and power accumulate is to bourgeois, bourgeois, people who live as bourgeois within a working class counterculture and counter hegemony. And that means that when real crisis moments accumulate, like 1917, they will use their overawing power and influence within the structure to direct the flow of the energies of the working class towards, say, imperial war <laughs> and away from class war. And in Russia, the, the, that, those structures basically didn't exist. You had a vast array of peasants. You had an incredibly thin strip of, of middle-class people who, in civil society and the bureaucracy. And then you had this purely parasitic aristocratic class who insisted on doing a lot of those bureaucratic jobs that had been farmed out to meritocrats in the rest of Europe right. 50 years earlier. Right. Underdeveloped, yeah. Underdeveloped structures. So that when World War II I starts, it is literally up to a half-wit inbred nitwit, an imbecile in the form of Nicholas II, who is holding power that in the rest of Europe is disseminated into bureaucratic structures that are governed by merit. Because this is the point where merit is still driving liberalism. It has not just, uh, extinguished itself. Just very briefly, I think it's important to underline that when Matt says technology, he's referring to literal technology, but also technologies control like bureaucracies, exactly. you know, institutions, capital institutions. And Russia is- Vocabularies. Right, vocabularies, languages, you know, things yeah. like that. A, a mechanism for controlling what is an increasingly complex capitalist society. Uh, and what's happened is that Russia doesn't have those equivalences. Maybe it has no. a little bit, it echoes it in areas of Moscow, but not yeah. like the rest of, of, of the- um, an enormous imperial space. And just to underline, Matt, what you just said, I think what you're effectively saying, and this is an interesting problem for the left in general down to today, is that um, class is read through nation. And it's not a surprise that a lot of, you know, the singular communist revolutions, whether you're looking at uh, Russia slash Soviet Union to Vietnam to China, occur in places where nationalist movements don't have the coherence that they do in areas of Western and Central Europe. There are elites that do it, and in Europe it's also an elite thing, but it's just such a more concentrated space that I think you're uh, able to have um, differences in nationalisms. And yeah. that's why it's like in the global South or what was called the third world during the cold war, or what was called in the time where area, I believe uh, the backward peoples is yeah. the, the language <laughs> that was used. Um, it's why so much of communism actually happened there. So you have this contradiction where Marx, I think you are right, basically gets everything right, but the political reality of it due to the strength of nationalism and imperialism in Western and Central Europe leads it to happen elsewhere in spaces that weren't as, at least according to Marxist theory, is conducive to it. It's basically Marxism, Marxism meeting the chaos theory of, uh, of 
unfolding reality. <laughs> yeah. Like you create unintended consequences that cannot be accounted for. Unknown knowns, as uh, Donald <laughs> Rumsfeld of the pod, referred Donald to Rumsfeld them. said, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so that, that, and that is why, uh, you could have people in Russia who, even though, even though the book, even though Marxism plainly told them that Russia was going to have to go through a capitalist stage of development before it could become communist, which to me is indisputable. This, this is, and you see why that was in there uh, and in the theory when the Soviets actually had happened, to yeah. add to try to develop communism. Is the that in so plans, doing, yeah. you're doing a lot of shit to people that alienates them from the social order, the kind of alienation that is productive under capitalism, but is here negative and accumulates uh, and undermines the project. And so I think this should bring us to the thesis of this particular episode and why we think it will be spicy is that our, our, our proposition, we suppose, that the Soviet Union, uh, the, the fact of communism dominating the Soviet Union and winning in 1917 was actually bad for the left, the international working class over time, which will, which will win us no friends on certain sides of the political spectrum. But uh, that is essentially what we're saying, is it not? Well, for me, it boils down to this. Uh, as I said, orthodox Marxism will tell you that Russia had to go through a capitalist stage of development. But the reality of the situation is that the global capitalist crack-up was happening while, the, while Russian uh, feudalism was cracking up. The heads of Europe were rolling, and they might have been constitutional monarchies or something close enough for government work in, in the West. In the East, it was an absolutist uh, medieval regime. And what this means is that even with Orthodox Marxism telling you, wait, the actual reality is telling you if you are a serious minded socialist in Russia that you have to act because this thing is falling apart. What is your role going to be in it? And more important, crucially, I think more important than anything is forgetting what the Bolshevik Central Committee wanted to do. The people in the streets wanted them to take power. The people on the streets wanted socialism. In one form or another. They didn't necessarily know what that was, but the people in the cities, specifically Petrograd, more than anywhere, and the, the place that really mattered in a way that could only happen in a fucking feudal society, could this one city end up being that determinative, uh, is that they had created in this city the model of a proletarian uh class consciousness development that, that Marx saw in the Western uh, European city, where you gather up proletarianized former peasants, throw them into a city and make them live and work together. They will start comparing notes. They'll start talking to one another and they'll start becoming militant. Uh, and in the Soviet Union, or I'm sorry, in Imperial Russia, uh, uh, their latent frenzied attempt to industrialize had created the largest factories in Europe at the time with the largest number of workers living and working in the same area. No other European city co uh, compared to uh, St. Petersburg's concentration of the working class in a place where all that cultural work and bureaucratic work and technological work had not happened. So that means that the, you, you are essentially asking uh, these people who want to see the war end and want to see some idea of a just society imposed that they have to wait for the 
bourgeois to take power and for them to impose capitalism on them. Who would accede to that? No one. They risked irrelevancy. So they were essentially forced into catching up to the right. urban masses of St. Petersburg. In many points in the crisis after February, you see the Bolsheviks caught flat-footed. And Lenin really, what he does by showing up when he does, is he is able to let them plan and decide to make a move that allows them to, for once, have the initiative. Instead of, like what happened in the July days, being caught on the back foot and having to uh, improvise and then inevitably being dispersed and crushed. That was when Lenin had to flee back to Finland. Right, outmaneuvered. Uh, and Lenin is basically saying, let's take this energy and direct it, which is why I do not think there's any way that the uh, provisional government would would have sustained itself absent a Bolshevik revolution. That's not in the cards. Uh, Kerensky and the, the cadets are not going to be able to reassert uh, uh, sovereignty or any any um, legitimacy in, in the popular uh, uh, they would be able to not they would never be able to assert popular legitimacy given what was happening they, the people wanted them to stop the war redistribute land all things that the middle class were constitutionally incapable of doing so they were going to be overthrown the only question was was it going to be by the left in some form or another or by a military coup and because the rest of the left was completely paralyzed because they were looking at things from an orthodox uh, Marxist point of view and saying, we can't take over. But they were essentially paralyzed where what were they were going to do is they were going to hem and haw and argue amongst each other and deny uh, uh, taking power and risking their lives, risking their principles uh, and, and frankly, trying to do jobs they weren't prepared to do. Uh, and uh, and wait for the army to solve the problem for them in the form of Kornilov or somebody else. So that's that's what would have happened. Uh, uh, but the question is, and and again, this is a thing that could have happened if Lenin's has a stroke at any point, which absolutely could have happened. He had some of the worst arterial health of anyone on earth. He was uh, just a tea kettle waiting to burst. <laughs> they say that when he finally died, they did the autopsy. When the, the, the doctor used uh, the forceps to tap his, uh, his, met, his uh, brain artery, it, it felt like concrete and it made right. a little tinking noise. It was like this mud guy's in not, there. Yeah, yeah. This guy's not healthy or someone shoots him or the train uh, from derails. the seal train <laughs> derails or the Ger Germans just decide not to do it. Right. Uh, if he is not there, you have a counter reaction. And I believe Trotsky theorized that uh, Nazism would have developed, fascism would have developed out of that and not in Germany, which I think is very well possible. But the question before us is, so this entirely contingent event doesn't happen. Unlike any of the others we've talked about, which all of them are much more thickly determined, something changes, we're in, another, we're in a portal into another dimension, and, and there is a counter-revolutionary overthrow of the provisional government. Would that be a better or worse outcome for uh, the class project than the establishment of the Soviet Union? Given what we know in 2021, like right, given the exactly. perspective, which obviously hindsight, that's why yes. doing alt history is great. It's Monday morning quarterbacking. You can never be wrong, but it is, I think an interesting and useful intellectual exercise. If we just understand that that's what we're doing, we are just going from the, the assumption that there's a better outcome than where we are now, that there is a better set of conditions than the ones we're, we're, we're stuck in. Now, of course, 
They're very, 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 very easily could be much worse. Of course. Always. And those those universes exist. But we're taking that we're taking for granted here the idea that that is assumed that, that if that happens, you have a worse situation for the left. We're saying, what is the case? What can what is the imagined world that can be created? Uh, given the assumption that, okay, this didn't succeed. And so I think that's interesting to uh, and important to underline that we're looking at this from the perspective of American leftists in 2021. And so right. we're looking at it from the perspective of a world in which after 1917, really after 1921, and you know, as the Soviet Union solidifies itself over the course of the 20s and the 30s, as it engages in, uh, in experiments that genuinely attract a lot of the Western left, there, there's a romanticism um, to, to early Soviet um, the early Soviet Union that is kind of, you know, displaced by the Moscow trials and then, you know, really destroyed by the doctor's plot in the 1950s. But there's a real romanticism where the Soviet Union becomes the center of international leftism. It becomes the place where the the left as an ideological project begins to seriously look. And and, uh, Moscow, of course, over the course of the 20th century, begins to take an ever more important uh, role in organizing the international left. And before we get into that question, I think it's just important to give a state of play, uh, let's say, where the American left was in, you know, 1917, 1918. So Eugene Debs in 1912 wins, I think, 12% of the popular vote, something pretty significant. I believe those are the right numbers, but, you know, is arrested toward um, the end of World War I. Um, there's a lot of, you know, anti-leftist things being done by the Woodrow Wilson administration. There's the arresting of socialists and other ethnic minorities. Let's assume that the German revolutions continue to fail. Let's assume everything proceeds as it was, but the only differences is that this the, the international leftist brain no longer becomes headquartered in Moscow. So what sorts of opportunities do you think that presents to the world where that might not have been available in the world where it actually lived, where you get, for example, a German Communist Party that is directly linked to Moscow or various third world revolutions that are uh, in various uh, ways linked to Moscow. Why would that be a positive development in your view? Or in what ways would it be negative? We could take both sides. Yeah. So it is literally a trade-off, right? So the disorganized international uh, socialist movement that had failed to create any sort of uh, uh, basis uh, for 1914, uh, right? Yeah, they had had no preparation. They had no way to assert any prerogative beyond the national one. They they broke into national sects. Had the significant downside of not having headquartered executive function anywhere. And what the victory of the Bolsheviks did was give this movement direction. Gives it a Uh, magnet. Gives it a North Star in a real way. Right. Which is why even people who understood that the project was having difficulties and that and that violence was happening <laughs> had flaws it was, to say the least. <laughs> it was it was necessary for the struggle. And at that point, they were right. Is the thing once it wins, once the Soviet Union is established, right. you can't you pretend it's not there anymore. Yeah, you have to assume okay, this is what we have, and then work from that perspective. And so many people made the correct decision that okay, we have to now support this government and therefore to a certain degree transform our internationalist perspective into a national perspective to assimilate a russian nationalist geopolitical uh, agenda that is separate from any of our work to spread international communism or even to to perform communism in our own countries because this is now the project 
And the problem with that, the, the, the trade-off that I was talked about, is that that centralization around this national interest creates contradictions. Right. And it's also just one uh, quickly, it's a centralization, which 1914 has proved in a world where there is no international genuine working class consciousness. Yes. Uh, there's not even one in Europe, right. uh, in Western Europe, in countries yeah, that yeah. are relatively similar to each other, let right. alone internationally. So yeah. that, that's that's the world that we're living in in 1917. Yeah. Right. And so when this newly centralized international, which is now the common turn, is able to assert its power, it's doing so. Uh, from a national perspective. And that means that their decision-making is going to be put through that lens. And you see the, the, the problem with that is the inability to reckon with uh, local conditions. Uh, in the 20s, you saw the decisions in Germany to demand that the Communist Party refuse all cooperation with the Social Democrats. And uh, in China, to encourage a urban revolt in Shanghai. Both of which end up having catastrophic uh, consequences. <laughs> Not great choices. Yeah, ca- yeah, literally catastrophic for the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. And the rejoinder to any counterfactual uh, musings about the failure of the Bolsheviks is often rejoined with, well, what about the Nazis, right? What about the Nazis? Without the socialism in one country and the iron hand of Stalin— You would not have had uh, the building up of a machine capable of defending against the Soviet, uh, the the Nazi party. And yeah, that is true. That's unquestionably true. But uh, I do wonder in a a context where uh, counter revolution is sort of on the march from the East, as it had been all through the 19th century, if the absence of a Soviet Union doesn't lead to the situation where the German left is capable, perhaps, of uniting in the face of like a military fascist plot, which, of course, is going to happen as capitalism uh, right. continues its uh, nervous breakdown all through the post-World War I period. No, I think that's true. And I think the question that, that we're dancing around is, like, what is, like— uh, the ordinary Hans on the street do, right? Yeah. If there's not a specter of Soviet communism that always infects how random German or random Frenchman or random English person or American, um, I think, uh, as well, if there if there's not that specter there, is there a way for the uh, nationally based left, which is not the ideal situation, yeah. but is the situation that we find ourselves in after World right. War One, uh, to become a more serious threat on the domestic stage? Because right. I do think that one of the ways Ways that um, social democratic reform, what I would say the major reason in the United States at least, was literally the specter of communism. And it yes. was used from the 1930s onward to basically prevent the genuinely radical reforms, which I I do think, absent uh, a Soviet threat or a Stalinist, you know, perceived Stalinist threat, would have been able to be channeled in a Western context. Um, and then, right. moreover, beyond that, beyond sort of like taking it from the perspective of the West, what if we don't have the Soviet Union? essentially picking winners in yeah. various countries around the world for their own parochial interests, their own yeah. declared parochial interests. And I think right. that opens up a, a, a world of possibility um, for things going a, a totally, uh, totally different way. The question I think, let's speak about it in the United States, is like, does liberalism go further left? Because I don't necessarily think absent the Soviet Union, all of a sudden Eugene Debs wins 48% of the vote. But I do think that you you could have a more genuinely radical liberalism, which was sort of 
in 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 the breach in the 1920s and the 1930s because it appeared to many um, that and this is people know the critique is, is most familiar with Carl Schmitt, but Carl Schmitt was one of a number of people across the political spectrum who essentially argue that liberalism is feckless and that it, it's you know laissez-faire approach to things. It can't really address the crises of the age, which is mass politics and the depression. So what if if there's not a Soviet Union? Could that liberalism actually embrace instead of the, essentially the right wing capitalist? Um, concordat that it made a, a more genuinely left-wing alternative. And I think that's really an open question without the Soviets. Yeah. Uh, many people uh, point out to the, the fact that all of the significant, as you said, all the significant social democratic reforms that liberalism uh, acceded to were in this, the context of a, the threat of the Soviet model and the threat of the Soviet union as a global competitor. And that is true. But when people make that point, they're uh, assuming that Absent the Soviet Union, there is no specter of the left. But there would be. It would just be the domestic uh, working class movements within specific countries. It would be scarier, uh, actually. It, right. I, I think it would be scarier than a essentially made up enemy as far as I'm well, concerned. Well, an enemy that can be uh, othered. Othered, uh, othered exactly. Uh, like, you, okay, you've created a national base for communism, but that means that you've put in the minds of those unaffiliated regular workers in the West who have not achieved class consciousness because of all those cultural antibodies we talked to, but who are still citizens, still consuming media, still laboring, still capable of being one to a political project. For them, communism has now been associated with this country, this foreign country, and foreignness implying with all of its threats of undermining one's own position whereas like an international proletarian can can say you have nothing to lose but your chains a, a nationally fixed communism says to unaffiliated workers we have these chains for you this national structure with its own contradictions which caused real violence i mean the civil war was horrifyingly bloody and yes you can blame it on the white army and the allies and that's correct and that's but once again, that was the consequence of the failure of a world revolution to occur. Uh, the thing that Lenin and Trotsky uh, essentially ruled out as a possibility in order to motivate themselves to do what they did. Right. Uh, Which they when, assumed and, earlier in their careers, by the way. Right. They yeah. assumed that was going to happen, but right. they had to rule it out and not incorrectly, one might add. Because in, the people – because when you're stuck with the question that the orthodox Marxists were stuck in as the uh, czarist regime fell apart, the mediocrities – are going to instinctively move towards the position of we can't do anything because they can't do anything. Anybody with any real ability is going to gravitate the question of what can I do? What can I do now? We can seize power and it will help bring about a world revolution. And they believe it because they're capable people like Lenin believed it because he was fucking Lenin guys. Like you can see in the, in the central committee meeting before they launched the, the revolution, you see there in the people who, said to wait the concentrated mediocrity of the old bolsheviks kamenev zinoviev these guys were the mediocre of the able basically and so they were afraid of doing it because they didn't have the confidence in themselves that included a confidence in a world revolution to come but absent that you have to fight a war and then you have to create an industrial state capable of competing with those other industrial states who created their proletariats through a process of centuries of violence and uh, oppression 
but also the expropriation of imperial spoils elsewhere to soothe and ease the transition into the working class subject, the, the subject outside of connections to land that you have to create before you can create communism. You are going to have to make workers with the same tools of violence that capitalism had used, but uncloaked by capitalism's mystifications. No god of the market to put off the violence on. Just the state, the people carrying this out. And it was necessary, but it also, as it was unfolding, tainted public faith in the project in the same way that feudalism lost its ability to sustain itself as it failed to allow people to believe in the project over time and over and replace it with what they thought was liberation, liberal capitalism. Right. Especially because when you're talking about the Soviet Union, by the late 1930s, it's hard to defend a regime that defends like the Moscow trials. You know, right. I think like whatever side you're on. And then, they, does, and then even if you can defend the terror in the trials and the Ribbentrop Molotov pact, I think. Oh, right. That has killed to it. be That's the final. Yeah. The final and irrevocable yeah. uh, nail because yeah. you literally have organized your politics around defeating capitalism by first defeating the rabid dog of fascism, which had to be killed before capitalism could be dealt with. And here right. you see the, the, your, the, the state that is the headquarters of, of working class revolution allying with the working class's most ferocious enemy. Even if you stuck around, and again, you probably had a good reason to do so because you are committed at this point to the Soviet Union. And what do you know? They ended up being the ones really to destroy fascism. So, hey, you bet the right hand. You made, they made the right call. Leonard, Stalin made the right call. He bought himself some time, and then he was able to get these uh, schmucks in the, in the democracies, quote-unquote, to help him uh, hold this fucker down and kill him uh, and put him in a position to compete for power with capitalism. Hey, it worked. But by that point, you have filtered out so many people. Yeah, that's of, 20 of ability, years on, yeah. And you have alienated fundamentally the regular non-attached worker who you have to fight for, who you have to convince because he has been conditioned and mystified by capitalism, as everybody in all these structures do. People re recoil from the idea of false consciousness because it implies that some people within these structures have real consciousness. No, false consciousness is universal within a uh, hegemony, you know, and everyone is seduced by it. Like, that's why you had the betrayal of the working class of Germany by the bourgeois fat cats of the SPD and the unions, but it exists all through society and it has to be dealt with and struggled with. And having the Soviet union there as the representation of world communism made it harder. And when you look at the way that the socialist party in the United States, which had been accumulating votes, right. had accumulating uh, offices was in a position to genuinely challenge for power locally and increasingly nationally, Collapsed completely after the uh, Russian Revolution. Yeah, and that's uh, because of the first Red Scare, right? You you get right. this huge strike wave after World War One, famously in Seattle, but um, elsewhere throughout the country as well. Um, there's coal strikes in 1919. There's a Seattle general strike in 1919. There's steel strikes in 1919. And one of the ways that capital was essentially able to organize itself against these successfully was to raise the specter of domestic Bolshevism yes. uh, as a genuine threat. You had people going around the country uh, talking about it. You, you have the famous Palmer rage. You have a lot of deportations. And the question is, and I think this is not a, 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 an open, I mean, an open and 
shut case, I think there's a, a real argument to be made that absent literally just the very existence of the Soviet Union, the U.S. government would have been able to be so uh, heavy-handed against a domestic threat. I don't you think you would have been able to get a large public opinion and get uh, against your side unless you were able to after years of anti-German propaganda, so the populace is sort of like ready to believe um, uh, anti-othering you know, propaganda. I don't think you're, you're able to get quite as such a – I don't think you're able to get a red scare essentially right. absent the Soviet Union. And remember, it's this is a process that's happening uh, on both sides. Uh, uh, the state is able to impose this new level of violence by justifying itself in the name of fighting against another. But the creation of the Soviet Union splits the labor movement and splits the uh, ele- the electoral left in two sides who either want to affirm their uh, loyalty to the Moscow Project or to be independent of it. And... That, that is was irre- not good for the left. That's an irrevocable <laughs> conflict, and it shrinks instead of expands the the pool of talent within the left and the potential recruits among the working class. So at both ends, you, it weakens the American labor movement. And while the Communist Party does emerge in the 30s as a significant force because of the degree of alienation caused by the Great Depression, they uh, have this Moscow weight around their neck. They responded by trying to compensate really kind of in an unseemly way by overemphasizing their patriotic bona fides. Under Earl Browder, the the slogan of the Communist Party was, communism is 21st century Americanism. And uh, at their big rally in Madison Square Garden, they had Abraham Lincoln's head uh, on stage. And they had to do that because they perceived the issue with pitching a foreign idea to American workers. Uh, and that is an obstacle that wouldn't existed uh, in the context of a general crisis in capitalism, which would have been there either way. Uh, and so if you have independent uh, national uh, socialist movements res- pushing against capitalism, uh, I Much think Much larger because they include communists right. now. <laughs> yeah. I think you do have the emergence of this fascist synthetic alternative. Agreed. But perhaps it's not able to effectively develop because it, the, the the national question is neutralized by a politics that is emphatically class conscious. Like the, the specter of the national is taken out of politics absent the Soviet Union. And then you could get the presentation of a more genuinely nationalist communism within within the German case. I mean, it's difficult to say, you know, does that mean Hitler doesn't come to power? Um, I do think a united left, particularly an SPD that doesn't feel like it needs to protect against its left flank, becomes a more powerful party after 1928, the, the era of the Nazis rise. I will say this. I do not think, though, that even in my most optimistic gaming out of this scenario, that we avoid large-scale violence uh, in the 1930s and 40s. That was my next question. I think so. Where did what what does that look like? Because does Russia become? Are the, is the czar like? Do they do they get like a William and Mary to come in? You know, from you know right. Finland, someone like vaguely related to the um, the Romanovs. Like that's also an interesting question. It's difficult for me to know because I don't know enough about Russian history. But like, where what is Russia? Because Hitler's entire thing is based on expansion for right. Lebensraum in the east. Yeah. So is Russia become some sort of fascist-aligned state because? That could be, a, you know, that's a horse of a different color. That yeah. makes a, a different thing. But I, I don't know. What do you think about that? What is Russia? I think you could see if Lenin's a, brain explodes. 
if not the reassertion of serfdom, I could I honestly think you could see a period of significant prolonged violence with massive violence to the Jews. Like may, not Holocaust numbers because we don't have that level of sophistication. Yeah, no, no uh, technology but, enough yet. Yeah. Ooh, like one way or another, the ooh, the Jews of Central Europe, the, the 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 people of the Pale, they take it on the chin in the 20th century. Yeah, I'm glad the my family was out of there by then. <laughs> the, the the bill of uh, is coming due. Not that the Jews deserved it, but that they had been the the uh, accumulated venting point of all. Uh, capitalist related alienation right and centuries uh, of and, and ruling class yeah. alienation like yeah, even yeah. under feudalism they had been there to absorb all of the the resentments of being a subject in uh, like post roman europe and so when the system breaks down there it's going to be they're going to have to be sacrificed basically uh, uh, of, for some regime on the right to consecrate their power because somebody has to pay for what happened right if if Kornilov or whatever it takes power, so you have a massive systematized uh, uh, pogroms of the Jews, uh, massive uh, purging of the middle classes, uh, huge emigration of 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 the intelligentsia, uh, but then the if not the reassertion of not the reassertion of serfdom, rather uh, an NEP style accommodation with the market and the peasantry. Uh, which would essentially sacrifice growth on the altar of stability, which would be possible because the Western allies would probably be very happy to affirm that uh, authority in order to prevent the potential takeover of the of the left. And if it didn't, if war, if 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 uh, if it f- failed to cohere, you'd see some sort of land grab. I think. By Germany, by the Western, oh, by by the Western powers, by Germany yeah. specifically, but yes, by the Western powers, there would be some attempt to carve it up the way that China was, right? So, sort of like the late nineteenth century carve up, right? So, does that does that reactionary power, let's say Hitler comes to power, do they ally with Hitler in some sort of rump state? Does Western- I think it would, it would be like it would be a relationship like he had with VC Vichy or something, you know? Uh, so yeah, it would be they would be a client. Yeah. It would it would be yeah. I mean. Someone is going to try to impose formal empire on this thing from a dominant position outside of the competitive framework. Someone is going to do the thing that That Napoleon Napoleon couldn't do, the thing that Charles V couldn't do, the thing that Charlemagne couldn't do, the thing that Suleiman the Magnificent couldn't do, and that is reaffirm uh, 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 dynastic power in Europe. Which Not is which is possible sense. in the area we're talking about because of the plains. You could right. actually do it. Hard right. to do in Western Europe. You know, I'm not sure that's really well. Super I mean, the possible. real thing is the level of uh, of technological sophistication here means that this sort of fighting laid waste to Europe cyclically. Right, the 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 Italian wars and the Thirty Years' War in Europe, like from that period, from like. Uh, Actually, from you could cycle it from the Hundred Years' War. You go from the 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 cycles of a Hundred Years' War to the Italian Wars, and that those are the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries for everyone. The Hundred Years' War, yeah, uh, to the Italian Wars after that, to the Thirty Years' War, as this chain of struggle over dominance of Europe from a central position, uh, and then it guttered out, and then flamed back up in the, in the guise of uh, early liberal modernity under Napoleon. Failed again. It cannot be really done, but the technology makes it more viable each time, basically, but also more destructive each time, hypothetically. And 
we've reached a point in the 20th century when that sort of state violence becomes apocalyptic, even absent an atom bomb. So that is why what I think happens in this hypothetical context, or let me just say the best, I should say the best case scenario, because obviously there's, we could talk about one where it's just war forever until somebody gets a bomb and then everyone gets a bomb and then everything is gone. That's possible. But I'm imagining a situation where in, in, st- in a context of low-level imperial violence now closer, like in the empire, but also on, in the hinterlands, in the bloodlands, as Timothy Snyder called them, but also increasingly civil war in the nation. So instead of a nation-state contest like World War I had been, you might have seen a, a series of civil wars, but similarly to the way that you saw uh, a, a outbreak of civil wars uh, in early modern Europe uh, under the same crisis conditions. Uh, and in that, in those wars, the bourgeois broadly construed one. Well, and that's what Marx was looking at when he was imagining the right. future of class conflict. What if there's a in united that, left? Yeah. If that happens then because of numbers and because of the uh, ability of the working class to get hold of the technologies of state and culture and warfare, you you could see the scales tip within a national context under conditions of crisis, which Marx understood to be necessary for uh, communism to succeed. Uh, So that is like the best case scenario. And even in that case, I don't think you have some generalized victory. You probably have pockets that then spin up into regional powers that then come back into conflict again with the bourgeois states more left wing maybe, but also having you know carried out this massive bloodshed. But in some states, like a, a real communism appearing that then has to do what the Soviets did, but in a different world, in a world where the pro- proletarianization has been more successful and complete than it was in feudal Russia. Right, in a world where the left hasn't been discredited by decades of association with the Soviet Union. And of course, the left answer to this is none of that is fair. They did everything they had to do. But you're not convincing leftists. If you you had to convince leftists, none of these questions would matter. You have to go pat, you have to go through the screens of mystification. Yes, you're righter than they are. But the problem is someone's righter than you on every question. The only way we can get towards a, a, a modus vivendi uh, of effective action is by comparing notes on the broadest possible social context, bringing together through technological communication the opinions of as many people of a, the same class as possible and to then make decisions based on that collected understanding. It's not up to individual uh, points of view. And even within that, if you think about like actually existing history, some unions were fairly right-wing, particularly in the United States. And I Big think time. those unions would have, wouldn't have been able to have been right-wing um, without that Soviet issue. Yeah. So you would have had a general drifting, I think, to the left and the embrace of, of certain even communist positions, particularly about planning uh, yeah. during the era of the New Deal. I think that could have become a thing in the 40s um, and after in a way that it wasn't quite in the United States. Um, so this will be our new TV show. It'll open with someone going into the train and you see Lenin dead and, and this will be uh, yeah. where where we'll go from there because um, but I, because the the question of Lenin lives Lenin doesn't die is interesting if you can keep that mind there in the cockpit instead of giving it to people who just weren't him uh but right. so much else has to happen in addition to him living so many dominoes have to fall that you really are moving a mountain 
to try to, in your head, imagine a plausible world where those conditions can produce any other result. But if the train is empty when it gets to the station, a whole host of possibilities open, if only because it didn't happen. Yeah, and just to underline, I think what we're saying essentially is that the the existence of the Soviet Union as it actually you know existed in reality, that we're, we're uh, understanding why it came to be, but that this did two particular things. One, by making Moscow the lodestone of the international left, and two, splitting the, the left in na- nation-state situated left into two parts that you know really were vicious with each other uh, yeah. throughout the 1920s, particularly uh, in Germany. It would have provided for new uh possibilities. And I think I want to underline that we're not necessarily making value judgments per no, se, but just trying to game totally things out. Beside the point, like one of the things that is makes it very difficult to think about history effectively and, and, and lucidly. And one of the reasons that we are stuck in an incredibly idiotic culture war around <laughs> American history that cannot be resolved and can only be used to fundraise for political scumbags is that we instinctively understand the compiling of a historical narrative to be about judging good and bad sides and the good and bad people and to putting ourselves in places where we can imagine that we were on the right side. But while that is a real live question in the moment when all this stuff is happening, it is only to the individuals. Now, in the rearview mirror, you have to just look at it as as stuff that happened. And understand that the moral decision-making matrices of every individual were individualized. And, and contextual and contingent. And contextual and contingent. And you cannot – there's no point in judging their subjective mindset, basically. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of instead finding out what they were thinking, why they were thinking it, and then applying it to the current moment. And I think this might actually be a good place to end because one of the major things you're trying to do in this first batch of episodes is to really, you know, underline the importance of historical materialism. To me, this is the first commandment, which is understand your time, understand what's going um, on in it, understand the past, understood what was going on then, because that's the way to try to get the world in which we want to live. That's the way in order to develop strategy. And and oftentimes judging the past from a value perspective, which is what we're really trained to do um, in, in the United States in modern times, occludes that. And so um, I think on that note, Matt, unless you have any last words, anything? Yeah, I just want to say that people want to say, how do you get Trotskyists? This set of dilemmas that was created by the success of the Bolshevik Revolution is how you get Trotskyists. Because Trotsky was, as uh, Isaac Deutscher called him, he was the prophet. And he was a prophet of, of a world revolution. And when it failed to happen, he essentially refused to make any decisions because he was waiting for the intercession of that world revolution that had to happen to yeah. resolve all the contradictions that he had in his mind dealt with. And he couldn't reassess those conditions when the world changed around him, basically. He was, he was trapped by it because he was the one who had exponed it. Trotsky is more responsible to, for the Russian Revolution, I would argue, than Lenin was in many important respects. It was his theory of permanent revolution that became Lenin's justification for seizing power. It was his leadership in the Petrograd Soviet from a perspective of oratory and public speaking that galvanized huge numbers of working class uh, Russians to rally to the Bolshevik banner. And it was his military direction of the actual seizure of the Winter Palace that made it happen from a tactical point of view. So 
he was like the unalloyed vision of the revolution. And that means that whereas Lenin was saved from the terrible question of what to do now by his own death, Trotsky was left in the lurch to try to make sense of everything. And he basically wanted to keep kicking the can down the road until the intercession of the Messiah, basically, in the form of a world revolution. But real people on the ground had to live real lives and they had to make decisions in the moment. And he essentially abjured himself from power willingly. He could have taken power, but he refused to because it would have required him to do things that he was not prepared to do. And so he then fled Russia and tried to imagine this untainted working class movement that isn't led by Moscow, that is separate, that is truly international. And he became just a sad loser trying to get together a bunch of pointy-headed dorks to, uh, to precisely align all of their perfect virtues together, to, to, to perfectly balance between these nasty capitalist and communist camps. And that's why they persist. But what that shows is the failure to adapt as conditions change. Right. Like once you don't have a world revolution, but you do have a Soviet Union, you have to reassess the whole thing. <laughs> and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't yeah. re- do it. And they got to a, there were two conclusions drawn from this. There was at the time the Zinoviev, Kamenev side that basically said we must industrialize to maintain ourselves. We need to squeeze the peasants. We need to pull them from the land. We need to impose uh, the market uh, on this feudal arrangement in order to compete with the West. And then you had Bukharin saying. No, (laughs) the world revolution is not happening. We have accepted that. Both sides basically had accepted that premise, which Trotsky wouldn't. Uh, And so he says, in this context, we have to climb down from this. We cannot be the communist vanguard in Russia. We need to extend the NEP and essentially introduce capitalism to rural Russia. We can try to hold on to power, but we're going to fundamentally have to change who we are as a party and our understanding of Marxism. Now, I would argue that in the moment, in that moment, Bukharin had the right of the uh, question. But what matters is, is that both of those sides ended up getting annihilated by the guy, one guy in the room who didn't fucking care. Because the other guy who did couldn't make the choice, couldn't face reality and just essentially let them kick him out of the country. So that he could be spared the, the, the moral stain of admitting he was wrong somehow and refounding his beliefs. And w- one of the reasons that Stalin ends up winning and we get like the worst model for communist political economy you can imagine. And that I don't think is arguable. You can say it's worth it, but that's from a position of believing in it, <laughs> which most people are not born to do they have to be uh, uh, convinced and acculturated to doing it because it was left in the hands of the people who were most willing to commit to the project of russia rather than the project of world communist working class revolution that's another great uh hinge point you know the lenin death and, and stalin and what if it was Trotsky oh God, yeah, who took over time. who was because, willing because uh, i think lenin if he'd been healthy and with it he would have changed the the uh, contours of the debate in such a way that they could have p- pulled towards some different accommodation 
that would have maybe been uh, more successful because you see in Lenin the guy who was the fusion of Trotsky's idealism with the steely resolve and and uh, willingness to uh, make the difficult but right yeah, choice will of to Stalin. Power, frankly, in the you see the will to, the will to power in Lenin. Yeah. So him applying his position, his paramount influence into these into that question, I think creates something other than the clumsy and and brutal uh, collectivization that you got. Well, I don't think the tankies are going to like this bad boy, but I hope people understand we approach it openly and honestly uh, yeah, in the best I, way. I, I just hope you, you, you get where we're coming from because we're not – the Soviet Union, once it happens at any point, it's, you got to defend it. It's there. If you had been there at the time, you have to defend it. You have to assume it's reality. You can't assume a fantasy world, but that's not what we're doing here. We're not living in its reality. It died. We're, we're, li we're living in the decaying corpse of the leftist project. If something is going to conquer, uh, cap, challenge capitalism, it's going to be new. It's going to be different. Right. It's going right. to be it a new be project. Yeah. There's stuff to learn about all of this of by course. analyzing it, but it cannot be engaged emotionally because it's, it's gone. The spirit has left. It's just a corpse. Precisely. And, and strategic thinking requires um, as objective as one can be about past events. And that uh, requires also imagining alternatives and seeing where uh, one might have been able to make different choices or where different contexts might have right. allowed for different possibilities. Yeah. Um, so uh, on that note, Matt, thank you. Thanks, everyone, uh, for listening to Hinge Points. See you later. Bye bye.